Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlock. Hi everyone, happy holidays. This is the last tale for 2023, and I'll be taking a breather over Christmas. Though I will be dropping some content on this site and on the Patreon feed throughout January. I'm hoping to launch Season 5 of the podcast on February 1st, 2024. Our tale today begins on Christmas Day, 1950. Location? Westminster Abbey, London. In the early hours of the morning, a policeman approached a suspiciously parked Ford Anglia. One could understand why a car would arouse suspicion in the wee small hours. It was part two-minute stroll from the Houses of Parliament. Buckingham Palace was less than a mile away. Although King George V and his clan were safely holidaying in Sandringham at the time. Then of course there was 10 Downing Street, the home of the Prime Minister. Imagine a policeman's relief when he discovered no modern-day gunpowder plot but a young couple embracing for warmth, if not for other things. I imagine him tapping on a frosty side window, followed by an, hello, hello, what's going on here then? And I suspect the young couple almost jumped out of their skins at the interruption. The officer spoke with the couple for a while, learning they were visitors from Scotland. Like that other couple traveling on Christmas day a few thousand years ago, They arrived in town to find the place far more bustling than expected. London was overflowing with people, and everywhere they went there was no room left at the inn. The officer was sympathetic to their plight but insisted they move on, regardless. Little did that officer realise that he'd been had. The couple were there on a rescue mission. What's more, they were there to strike a blow for Scottish independence the mission? To repatriate an old, moderately heavy stone that was once believed to have supernatural powers. This Christmas and my ongoing attempt to tell all the Christmas stories that have nothing to do with the season, well we'll come back to those heroes. But first we have to travel to the mythical ancient past, to a town in modern day Palestine, then called Luz. This stone needs a little explaining. The time frame, if this even happened, around 4,000 years ago. Jacob, the future great patriarch of the Jewish people, grandson of Abraham, which makes him 10 times great-grandson of the ark builder Noah. He's on the lamb. Once upon a time, his elder brother Esau came home from a day in the fields, absolutely famished. Esau, in a my kingdom for a horse moment, stated he'd give away his birthright as the firstborn just for a bowl of porridge. Can I take that birthright for a bowl of lentils? Jacob asked. I paraphrase. Everyone had a laugh about this, until their father, Isaac, blind and on his deathbed, actually called out for his eldest to bestow that birthright upon him. Esau was out hunting deer that day, while Jacob was just mooching about the house. Jacob had snuck in there and received the blessing from the dying patriarch, 
So in one telling, Jacob is now a big deal, and Esau was furiously searching high and low to kill him. Another telling claims he was simply on his way to find a wife. But either way, Jacob was on the road, in an unfriendly town, where his safest option was to camp under the stars. That night, Jacob laid his head on a rock and dreamt vividly of a ladder from earth ascending into the heavens. He saw angels climbing up and down the ladder. At various places, these angels fell, representing coming struggles of his people, each step in the ladder apparently representing so many years into the future. While angel watching, God approached Jacob. He promised him the land he was in, to rule over and to spread his seed. I'm sure the Canaanites and Philistines already living there were thrilled to hear that. The next day, Jacob woke up with a mission. Renaming Luz Bethel, he laid claim to the land. The stone he slept on was anointed with oil and then placed upright, with a promise the stone would act as a marker for a house of God. In effect, it went from pillow to pillar overnight. But how did this apparently hallucinogenic stone end up in Scotland? Well, fast forward to Jerusalem in the 6th century BC. Jeremiah was a Jewish prophet living approximately between 680 BC and 570 BC. He was deeply unhappy that a number of Israelis had given up Judaism for a god named Baal and was convinced the Judeo-Christian god would abandon them for it. He spent his days dictating several books that would make it into the Christian and Jewish Bibles and railing against false prophets and sinners. Jeremiah was convinced Babylon would swoop down on Jerusalem any day now as some kind of divine punishment, a viewpoint that fairly branded him a pain in the ass to the people of Jerusalem. For his bother, he was regularly assaulted, lived under a cloud of regular death threats, and was often punished by being thrown in the stocks. When the Babylonian emperor Nebuchadnezzar II did in fact invade Jerusalem in 587 BC, legend has it Jeremiah had been arrested for preaching and had been left to starve to death in a pit. The Babylonians apparently released Jeremiah from that pit, treated him kindly. It is generally accepted the weeping prophet was a real man who wrote or dictated several books and probably was a huge pain to the Jewish authorities of his age. Now the Irish believe that following the fall of Jerusalem, Jeremiah took off for mainland Europe with a large trove of relics from the Temple of Solomon, including Jacob's pillow. The legend states Jeremiah was among a party that included Tiatephi, eldest daughter of the last king of Judah. After some time on the road, they allegedly sailed for the ends of the earth, wrecking off the coast of Ireland. Later on, Tia married a local king. According to Irish legend, the Stone of Destiny, or the Leofal, as they called it, became an integral part of the Irish coronation ceremony for slightly over a thousand years. Then in 503 AD, an Irish prince called Fergus returned from having captured a small kingdom on the western coast of Scotland. 
He borrowed the stone with the intention of declaring himself King of Scotland. Fergus never bothered to return the stone. In 843, Kenneth MacAlpin, a man often referred to as the first King of Scotland, took possession of the stone. He moved it to Scone, where it was used in the coronation of generations of Scottish kings. Macbeth and Malcolm, who we briefly mentioned in Heroid of the Wake, were among those kings crowned over the Stone of Scone. But where did the stone actually come from? Well, your guess is as good as mine. But I would guess from a Scottish quarry. Wherever it originated, whatever magical powers it may or may not have had, the Stone of Destiny would be on the move again soon enough. Its capture by the English would occur following a very nasty accident. On 19th of March 1286, Alexander III, King of Scotland, took a moonlit ride to be with his second wife, the then pregnant Queen Yolanda. It was her birthday the following day, and I can't say that Alexander loved his bride and specifically wanted to be with her on her special day. But I can say he'd been away on business, and was desperate to be home as soon as possible. The weather was rough, and his advisers pled with him to stay in Edinburgh, but the king would have none of that. Throughout the day, his entourage pushed on through the storm. By nightfall, they were still out in the elements. While travelling through the town of Kinghorn in Fife, Alexander suddenly vanished. Between the pitch darkness and the heavy deluge, his entourage could make head nor tails of the king's disappearing act. The following day, all was revealed when his body was found on the beach. Alexander's horse had taken a tumble down a steep rocky embankment, sending man and horse to their death below. His passing brought on a constitutional crisis in Scotland. He had one direct heir still cooking inside Yolanda. Had the child been a son, succession would have been clear. Alexander himself had become king in name, aged eight, after his own father's passing. The child was a girl which would have added to the complications of having to find someone to marry her as soon as they possibly could. But the child either miscarried or was stillborn. His first marriage was to a lady called Margaret who at the time of their marriage was the ten-year-old daughter of Henry III of England. Alexander had been eleven himself. The couple had three children together before she passed on, but all three of their children passed on before Alexander, all having barely reached adulthood. Many a court called for Alexander's three-year-old granddaughter, Margaret, the maid of Norway, to be brought to Scotland and crowned over the magical stone at Scone. But something wicked this way came into the fray. Enter England's king, Edward I, known as Edward Longshanks, soon after to be known as the Hammer of the Scots. If his record was anything to go on, Edward was a warmonger, and yes, I know they were all warmongers. As a younger man, he'd set off on crusade to the Holy Lands, and fourth of those lands Jacob had dreamt were his, over our alleged stone. Edward kept in touch with the Mongol court for many years, in the hopes that he could incite the Khan to help him invade the Holy Lands. More recently, he'd conquered Wales, previously a sovereign land. 
Edward was the brother-in-law to Alexander through Alexander's first marriage and was far too interested in Scottish politics for anyone's good. Edward insinuated himself into the Scottish succession crisis. Margaret, the maid of Norway, would be brought over once she turned seven. She'd be married to his six-year-old son, Edward of Carnarvon. But everything got turned upside down when Margaret fell ill, having reached Orkney, dying a week later, most likely of food poisoning. This meant there were no heirs, although 14 rival claimants to the crown suddenly appeared. Edward was insistent his friend John Balliol should be king, and used his influence to make this happen. Although the Scots themselves preferred Robert de Bruce, 5th Lord of Annandale, John Balliol was crowned over the magical stone at Scone on November 30th, 1292. Now his brief reign made him very unloved by the Scots, not least of all as he made Scotland the vassal state of England at the first opportunity. A group of Scots aristocrats approached the French and Norwegian kings and made treaties with them in preparation for a Scottish rebellion. It all kicked off in 1296 when a militia deposed Balliol. Edward Longshanks invaded Scotland soon after. The war went England's way at the start, and would eventually drag on for more than half a century. But the Scots won out in the end, and the crown would eventually pass to the grandson of the fifth Lord of Annandale, a man we know as Robert the Bruce. Scotland would retain their independence until the Queen of England, Elizabeth I, died childless. The Scottish nephew, King James VI of Scotland, turned out to be the next in line for the English throne. The two entities merged, even if the two countries didn't for quite some time. But all the same, the Hammer of the Scots was initially quite successful. And in 1296, he relocated a large trove of Scotland's national treasures back to London. The Stone of Destiny was in the collection. Edward had a coronation throne built around that stone. Now we'll soon return to Westminster Abbey in 1950, but first just a little bit more background. In the interim, the Scots, Stuart dynasty, lost control of those crowns. First to a Dutch guy named William, then when his family ran out of Protestant heirs, to an obscure Germanic family from the elector state of Hanover. Scotland's royal bloodline was still in the mix, but became increasingly less dominant. The people suffered the downsides of being colonised, though having never actually been conquered. Although the Stuarts still did have an active bloodline with a strong claim to the throne, it's just that they were passed over due to their Catholicism and rumours of one particular child's legitimacy. James II of England, the 7th of Scotland, was deposed in 1688 in favour of William of Orange and his wife Mary. He had a son with his Catholic second wife, Mary of Medina, after having gone through five miscarriages and five stillbirths together. Those earlier deaths were later used as evidence that child number 11 was just some random kid they'd secretly adopted, but DNA testing has since disproved this. That child, James Francis Edward Stuart, later known as the Old Pretender, grew up in France. 
he never gave up on the hope of one day regaining his birthright. And why would he give that up? His grandfather, Charles I, was beheaded in 1649. Their family had to flee England, but by 1661, his uncle, Charles II, was restored to the throne, followed by his father, James II, in 1685. The old pretender made several attempts to retake the crown, with help from the Scottish Jacobites. Most notably, they did so following the Hanoverian succession of 1715. His son Charles, known as the Young Pretender, or more famously, Bonnie Prince Charlie, followed in his father's footsteps. He was defeated at the Battle of Culloden in 1746 and fled back to the continent, never to return again. The British responded to that coup attempt in the short term by carrying out a three-month-long terror campaign in the area, randomly executing men who wore Highland dress and raping local women. Some historians, rightly, I think, sum the campaign up as a genocide. Later, the British forcibly exiled the people living in the Scottish Highlands and Western Isles, where old clan systems still dominated, to make way for English sheep farms. For some time, this broke the Scottish independence movement. Both nations grew closer for some time after. They found a common cause in colonising others, building a vast British empire overseas. Then the Industrial Revolution brought prosperity to the Scots, and factories spread throughout the land. But in the 1880s, as the Irish, whose recent history had been far from prosperous, continued to demand their freedom. And the Scottish-born British Prime Minister William Gladstone advocated for Irish home rule. The Scots rediscovered their urge for self-determination. In 1913, a bill went before the British Parliament demanding a separate Scottish Parliament. The call for Scottish independence picked up a pace, but on the outbreak of World War I, the Scots put differences aside to fight alongside the Allies against the Central Powers. The bloody war in Ireland, which led to an Irish Free State in 1922, reignited Scotland's independence movement. But they got tied up by infighting in the 1940s. In 1950, with the world wars behind them, four students from Glasgow University realised a grand gesture was needed to refocus the resistance. So on Christmas Eve 1950, four Glaswegian students met at a Lions Corner House in London, an open 24-7 complex full of pubs, food courts and barbershops. Having made the 400-mile journey in a couple of Ford Anglias, Ian Hamilton, Kay Matheson, Gavin Vernon and Alan Stewart planned to liberate the Stone of Destiny that night. Hamilton would pay the entrance fee, and then hide wherever he could in the abbey on closing time. Once everyone was gone, he'd force a door open and let the others in. Well, Hamilton found a quiet corner, but a night watchman found him. He was able to convince the guard he was just a tourist who was accidentally locked in, so he was let go. But I do have to wonder, following their first failure, did they cast their minds back to Robert the Bruce, King of Scotland? 
There is a legend that probably only entered the canon in the 19th century, by way of a writer, Sir Walter Scott. The story goes that in 1306, having lost to the English at the Battle of Methven, and having lost William Wallace the year before, a broken Robert took refuge in a cave. Binding his time, he watched a humble spider spinning a web near the entranceway. The spider attempted to cast a web from floor to ceiling, only to see his efforts laid low by a gust of wind. Time after time, the spider dusted itself off and started over again. Legend states Robert watched six failed attempts and wagered to himself if the spider succeeded the seventh time, he'd gather a militia and rejoin the fray. Well, the spider succeeded. If we're to believe the legend, and to be honest, I don't think we should believe much mythical and legendary in this tale, Robert learned an important lesson. If at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again. So if at first the students failed, well, return in a few hours and tear a door off the damn hinges if need be. The students returned at 4am, Christmas morning. They forced a door near Poet's Corner. They then made for the coronation chair and carefully lifted the Stone of Destiny from its shelf. Placing Hamilton's coat on the floor, Hamilton, Vernon and Stuart placed the stone atop the coat. Vernon and Stuart grabbed an arm each and started dragging. Hamilton seized the chain attached to a corner of the stone, but his effort caused the stone to break into two pieces. In utter shock and disarray as the liberators tried to work out what to do next, Hamilton grabbed the smaller piece, then ran for the cars. Outside, Kay was in a car when she spotted a policeman in the distance. This is the officer from the start of our tale. She fired up the ignition and drove towards Hamilton. Hamilton rushed to the car, placed a chunk of stone on the back seat, jumped into the front seat and embraced Kay, hoping the officer would take them for two lovers. The officer spoke with them, sympathised and then sent them on their way. Meanwhile, inside the abbey, Vernon and Stuart heard the policeman and then the car driving off and they suddenly got very nervous. Once the path was clear, they abandoned the stone and took off on foot. But Ian Hamilton wasn't done yet. While Kay drove off, he returned on foot to the abbey. The stone lay where the men had left it, atop his coat in the middle of the floor. Vernon and Stuart were nowhere to be seen. The second Anglia remained parked outside, Alone, Hamilton manhandled the stone out into the car park. The keys were in his coat pocket, but they were no longer in his pocket when he checked. So he had to re-enter the abbey, crawling along the floor in the inky darkness, fumbling for his keys. He was eventually successful. He got the larger piece of stone into the Anglia, as one might heave a McGlashan stone onto a barrel. He then drove down the old Kent Road, happening across Vernon and Stuart as he went. There was a great panic later that day, when the Stone of Destiny was discovered missing. Scotland Yard rightly presumed the stone had been stolen by the Scottish independence movement. They ordered the Scots-English border closed immediately. In the meantime, the students hid the larger chunk of stone in a field in Rochester. A week later, when they came back for the stone, 
a traveller community were camping atop the burial site, although they were happy to let the students in to dig it up. The smaller piece had spent time hidden in a garage in Birmingham, in the north of England. Stone of Destiny was finally back to where it most likely originated. The Scottish Covenant Association, a group who advocated for Scottish independence, took possession of the stone in the new year, but Scotland Yard were hot on their trail. Ian Hamilton was a prime suspect, having taken out every library book in Glasgow on the Stone of Destiny prior to the liberation. Finally, on 11th April 1951, they contacted authorities stating the stone had been left for them at the ruins of a Scottish abbey where Scotland had famously declared their independence in 1320. Now in a sense, this tale is ongoing. As the British Empire lost all of their colonies, and their industrial might waned, many Scots became wary of cutting loose of England. Their industrial power too waned throughout the 1960s, and going it alone felt all too precarious. The discovery of offshore oil gave the devolution movement a boost in the mid-1970s, and in 1979 the Scots held a referendum on their independence. They voted to leave 52% to 48%, but due to low voter turnout, the British Parliament chose to just ignore the result. A second vote was held in 1997, which led to Scotland getting its own Parliament, but not to a full devolution. In a third vote in 2014, a little over 53% of Scotland voted to stay with the United Kingdom. Now it is notable this was before the Brexit vote, with 62% of Scots voted to stay with the European Union. So they may have voted very differently if those two events were reversed. Back to the stone. Hamilton, Matheson, Vernon and Stewart were all interrogated by police with all but Hamilton admitting to their part in the liberation. The police realised had they charged them with theft, the four would have become martyrs to the cause. With the stone back in their possession, all four were simply let off the hook for the theft. In 1996, the decision was made to move the Stone of Scone back to Scotland, although it still remained in royal possession. It was put on display at Edinburgh Castle. Following the death of Queen Elizabeth II in September 2022, plans were made to bring the Stone of Destiny to London for the coronation of Charles III. In a land where, post-Brexit, I think they almost certainly would devolve given another referendum, opinion was divided as to whether the Stone should be allowed to return to London, if only temporarily. Ian Hamilton, who qualified as a lawyer following the liberation, and spent his long life advocating for devolution, passed on in October 2022, a month after Queen Elizabeth. He was not there to give his opinion, though his son Jamie shared with reporters, Ian would have found the return ridiculous. No doubt, the Scots' fight for independence will resume at some time in the future. Merry Christmas all, I'll drop a couple of From the Vaults episodes in January. Meantime, happy holidays. Hope everybody has a wonderful time out there.